The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It's always great to be with you. And this week, there's so much to talk about. And I hope you find here a release or a relief, if you will, from the nausea, the agnosium of the endless echo chamber of the mainstream media, those who refuse to cover the realities of the global jihad and what Muslims need to do to reform our faith, to move forward, to advance national security. I think here you'll find that voice, not only of moderation, whatever that means, but patriotism, security, freedom, that voice of a Muslim is willing to take ownership. And that's why we call this program Reform This. A little sarcastically, a little in your face, if you will, to the clerics, to the imams who refuse to reform, who refuse to engage in solutions, and to our leadership, to our media, to our government, who will not engage in solutions. Maybe the Trump administration will if they can get off the distraction cycles. But here, at least, at this podcast, you'll be able to get those little nutrification of your soul that will help you engage and find those right Muslims that I think should be part of the leadership in countering and facing the militants, the radicals, and the non-militants who are Islamist. You know, if you listen to me week to week and you still don't know what Islamism is, I have failed. If you don't know what jihad is, I have failed. If you don't know who the Islamists are versus the non-Islamists, I have failed. There's a movement out there. In America, it may not be that big because there's only 4 million Muslims or so, but globally, of the 1.8 billion Muslims on the planet, some studies conservatively 30 to 40% believe in and advocate some form of Islamism or political Islam. This week, what I wanted to do is step back a little bit. I was asked to speak at a couple venues about human rights human rights in the nation state. What is the role of the West? What is the role of America? And I thought, well, you can't talk about human rights, about religious freedom, individual rights, liberty. You can't talk about that today without juxtaposing the definition and the defense of those rights with the threats that run up against the protection of an individual's human rights. And what are the threats? The primary threats is a triangle of the billion plus that live in China, the Russian threat and its attempt to expand again into Cold War 2.0, and then the rest of the world, save the free world, which is Islamist, theocratic, monarchical, tribal, but still beset in an Islam that has not found modernity. So the main threats to the advocacy and the protection of human rights at this point from my podcast here at Reform This, is political Islam, the identity of the Islamic State. I've talked to you before about the fact that what made me turn out the way I did is not that I'm a mutation or some type of bizarre confluence of random events, but I am a byproduct of my family's history 
from Syria, escaping freedom, seeking political freedom, religious freedom here in America. I'm a byproduct of the history of Syria, of the Middle East, not only in the last 50 to 100 years, but the last 1,400 years, and even before that. And I'm a byproduct of having had a bit of a unique opportunity in which to learn my faith in a small town in Wisconsin with just a few families that insulated me from global movements, national movements that we see here at most big cities of political Islam, of the Muslim Brotherhood, of Jamaat Islami and other global Islamist movements. But one of the things that started to become clearer to me is that the social construct of America, what makes America work, yes, central to that is Judeo-Christian values, central to America's success is our constitution, the protection of our rights, the enshrinement of what we stand for in a separation of powers and a First Amendment, a Bill of Rights that prevents the establishment of religion. And that glorious experiment, that glorious experiment that our founding fathers gifted us with and God blessed them with, is an ability to translate a legal system that was not simply a democracy. In fact, the word democracy is not in the founding documents, but a republic. And why is that important? And, and this is key to when talking about human rights, because a right, how do we define a right? A right is that which you can claim is, is a not a privilege, but a right is something you can claim at any time that is yours. You own it and you can have it and you can express it and be it at any moment. That's what a right is. A privilege is something you ask for and you're given. A human right is thus something that you can declare, own, and use and exploit and take advantage of at any moment. So for those of us who are God-fearing, a human right are those rights from God, those inalienable rights, unalienable rights that cannot be taken from us by government. We cannot be alienated from them, but we, can, we do own them, and nobody else can take them away from us. The freedom of speech, the freedom of assembly with our other members of our community, the freedom to worship, and the freedom from being persecuted in the name of our faith, in the name of our national identity or our race. Those are human rights of equality, equality of all under God. So ultimately, the nature of human rights, I think, gets muddied, it gets cloudy when we discuss it from country to country. And I think tied to the defense of human rights needs to be a narrative about what it means to be free, about what it means to be human, about what it means to have free will. That with that free will comes the unmistakable guarantee that the society will not create an atmosphere, a culture, a social contract that places some people's speech above others, that places some people's rights and privilege above others. Because otherwise, humanity is no longer humanity, it becomes caste, it becomes layered. It becomes a competition for those 
either through Darwinian or whatever processes for those who believe they may have more rights than the other. That's how I understand human rights. And if you, and I think at the core of those human rights. Now, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was Eleanor Roosevelt's mechanism through the UN to thus enshrine to the world. And I think what was brilliant about that, regardless of what you may feel about Eleanor, the bottom line is, is that it enshrined to the world in a language that wasn't rooted in this American exceptionalism, which I, I truly believe in, because America is not only exceptional, but its first freedom of religious freedom has allowed us to have a laboratory that recognizes that society should be based first in every individual's right to either refuse or accept religion, to define which form of it, to define whether you believe in God or not, whatever that translation is. Society should protect that. And that's what makes us individuals. And the rejection of all religion, atheism, is still protected by the government. There is no judgment. There's no rule. There's no faith test for our leaders. There are so-called democracies that then demand that the president be Islamic, be Christian, Catholic, as in Argentina. But our founding fathers never made such a faith test. There's no faith test for being a member of Congress or a member of any branch of government. Even though we may swear on the Bible, there's tradition in that. There's a need to ensure, there's a need to ensure that the oath that the citizen takes to serve his or her country is true. And you do that based on the text in which you swear. Now, if you're not Christian, I would think you should replace that with the text that you believe in. If you're Jewish, the Talmud, the Old Testament. If you're Muslim, the Quran. When we come back, let's dive deeper into human rights and how it runs up against Islamism and the Islamic theocracy. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. We're diving deep this week deep into human rights, definition of rights, definition of freedom, and how how this premise, this premise can then be used to guide the compass on who we work with in Muslim reform. Because that compass, that compass of direction in which we figure out which way to head in establishing alliances with those in the Muslim world from country to country that may share our values versus those who are antagonists is going to be dependent upon the lens through which they view the world. And no, I, I refuse, I refuse to acknowledge what in Brookings Institute, Shadi Hamid calls Islamic exceptionalism. Now, there is no such a thing as Islamic exceptionalism. Yes, me personally, I believe the faith that I love is Islam. That is the path, the recipe that I've chosen in my personal relationship with God. But the only community, the only nation state's exceptionalism, I believe, that we can embrace is Americanism. Now, obviously, that's our form of it. Other countries, other peoples would then embrace Egyptianism, Saudi Arabianism, Qatarism, Iranianism. 
Every country needs to come up with its own exceptionalism, but key and central to that discussion is a common shared understanding of human rights. And that's what we're talking about on the podcast today, this week, is that common universality, that universality of human rights. What are those common principles? Because once we've decided what those are, we will use those as a benchmark. Use it as a benchmark by which we hold up the measure of a society. The social contract in which you respect everyone in your faith, everyone in your community, everyone in your nation state should be based upon what that society believes are the principles or the rights that it will defend. And again, I've talked to you before about the countering of jihad, that we'll counter jihad because the jihadists attract followers, radicalize Muslims across the planet because their nation state of what they would die for, that legal state of Sharia, the alliance, the allegiance to the loyalty of that state is jihad. The citizenship of that state is equal to the belonging of a faith. That's why you have to separate mosque and state in order to defeat jihad. Because once you belong to an Islamic state identity with that exceptionalism, come with that is jihad. And the only counter to that is the free state. And I would tell you that as much as the oxygen of the Islamic state is the belief that God's religion is Islam for Muslims, but then in non-Muslims become subjects of that Islamic state, not equal individuals under God, but subjects of that Islamic state. So we have to, we have to teach our Muslim friends, brothers and sisters, that human rights come from God, yes, but they come from God, not from mankind, and not certainly from the clerics with the beards, and not certainly from Sharia and government. Maybe laws based in reason. So as you look at understanding, and this a lot of this obviously you're gonna start lights will start coming out, light bulbs will start going off about enlightenment theory, existentialism. John Locke, we had an episode that you and I talked about John Locke at length. But I do think as we look at the narrative as we understand what the narrative is of human rights. And this is so important because if a nation state's identity is no longer wedded to the human rights lens, then it will, it will eventually slide down into fascism, into nationalism. It will eventually slide down into supremacism. That's what happened with the Nazism of Germany. Post-Enlightenment society understood democracy, understood freedom. But the people, because of economic issues, because of fear of the other, because of bigotry, hate, handed over their human rights, their individual rights to the state to the state gone wrong, gone wild with fascism, with supremacism. So ultimately, ultimately, yes, if you look at the, you can do legal analyses of the Constitution, you can do legal analyses of our separation of powers and all that, but I will tell you, boil it down, what we need to start teaching across America and then bring Muslims in and use this to spearhead the global reform movement against the Islamists. Ultimately, the marriage of national identity in every individual to that American dream, to the sense of equality, the sense of an equal access to human rights, universal human rights, and that ability to choose and be free, that ability to believe in God or not, 
and you can use whatever language you want of your faith. For Muslims, we would use, obviously, the Islamic language. Christians use their Christian language. What they teach in their churches, what they teach in their synagogues, what we teach in our mosques. But the allegiance as a community, as a sacred, sacred and secure community, the allegiance of that community will be wedded to the protection of the human rights of every individual. And I think this is why it makes sense that no matter how egregious the crime, from first-degree murder to rapists to whatever they may be, our rule of law in America demands that people be adjudicated for their crimes in court and that, yes, we may agree or believe in the death penalty, but... Just as we've seen in the past, at times when that system goes wrong, we stop all of it until we correct it, as some of the death penalty processes show. But the central axis, the central axis of survival, of understanding, of consciousness in America that makes us free, and from which come our free markets, our music, our art, from Hollywood to New York, the identification of individualism that ultimately is the food for our soul is the belief that not only are our documents under God, but the society, as de Tocqueville talks about in Democracy in America, he says military dictatorships don't really need God because they can enforce through fear, through the rule of law, martial law, they can enforce a moral code of ethic in which violence and acting out and stealing and other things are not done. So, in order to have free will and not have the state interfere in your property, interfere in your movement rights, assembly rights, speech rights, we need to know, we need to believe that the majority of society is moral. So I would tell you that tied deeply and intimately, to the construct of human rights is morality. You cannot, you cannot have a society that recognizes and defends human rights that's immoral. It doesn't work because the exploitation of society, the exploitation of power structures, Darwin, which the most fit survive, would then no longer be the equality of all, regardless of certain advantages some may have, either of intelligence, of strength, of material wealth, whatever it may be. Yes, obviously, we are not all quote-unquote exactly equal, but our human rights are equal. The nature of our being is equal. And it is judgmental to assume it is judgmental to assume that physical strength makes us unequal. It is judgmental to assume that differences in intelligence make us unequal. So, the essential nature of human rights is the essential sense that we don't judge one another, that we're humble. We are humble. And that humility, that humility is again only only born true when truly we feel that we are not better than anyone else in society, no matter how brilliant or successful they may be or appear. And I will tell you that, again, as de Tocqueville mentions, equality needs God in our lives. Democracy needs God in our lives. And as long as we have a faithful, God-fearing population, the need for military rule goes down and is not necessary. And that's why he saw America so much success, more successful than previous democracies that he had seen. When we come back, let's translate that now into Islamic Reformation, modernity. How can we take this very American construct of religiosity, personal religiosity, and 
universal religious freedom and human rights and translate that into operationalization of a Muslim reform movement. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. This week's episode, we're contemplating the role of human rights, the centrality of human rights, and the narrative in the West of freedom. The West, as I've learned in this American experiment, this American exceptionalist society that taught me that everyone has access to the American dream, everyone has access to free markets, to education, to what it is to define yourself, that you can define yourself. You're not shackled by the definitions of the neighborhood, the government, the society, the tribe that you belong to. So in that narrative that I, you and I talked about in the last two segments, this segment, I, I wanted to, to translate for you, if you will, how do we take that human rights lens of universal human rights, of inalienable rights, how do we translate into that that into a Muslim reform movement? Number one, central to that, is that we work with Muslims who believe that every Muslim, every Muslim owns the interpretation of Islam owns their own interpretation of Islam, that they cannot have their Muslim identity defined by somebody else, defined by a piece of cloth on their head, the hijab, defined by whether they demonstrate their prayers five times a day. Yes, these acts of ibadah or worship are important for each individual, but not for society. Now, that may sound like heresy, But you can't reform a religion that is strangulated by a corruption of top-down control of what is and what is not the faith. And as you see in most religions in history, they've controlled what defines the faith by controlling the Catholic Church, for example, for hundreds of years, prevented the laity from reading the scripture in Latin. And then theocracy took hold in those societies for quite a while before ultimately the European revolutions culminating in the American Revolution took hold against theocracy. Now, some people will say that in Islam, the very definition of the faith is the negation of the individual, that since Islam obviously doesn't mean peace, it means submission, that when you submit to God, You submit to Islam, you've lost your free will. Well, there's no doubt that the predominant definition, the predominant understanding of submission is an oppressive, oppressive autocratic way to define the faith. But if I can give you passages, if I can give you interpretations that say that free will is defined by living in a society that allows you to be free, that allows you to reject or accept the faith, that then becomes the test of the faith. And that once you've done everything you can to choose the right path, whatever that is you may choose, you then submit yourself to God's will, nature's will, whatever the predominant understanding of fate So submission 
just like treating disease, just like saving money, whatever it might be, your choices are yours. If you live your life like there is no tomorrow and you're not wise, that is free will. And you submit yourself to your own bad mistakes. Submission as a faith is submitting to God after on this earth we have made our humanly decisions. So Islam is derived from the root term salama or to surrender or submit to God. And essentially in reference to that relationship of my soul with God, the Almighty Creator, the soul is only at peace, teslim, salama, if it has completely submitted to the will of God. Thus, as a Muslim, I believe that I achieve ultimately that free will, the purest of liberty and truth, if I, have a Mus I as a Muslim has submitted to God of entirely of my own free choice, not by coercion, not by intimidation of my parents, my uncles, my community, my government. So I would tell you that we have to marry the human rights definition of equality first with our understanding of what it means to submit. That submission needs to be unencumbered by any oppressive forces in society. Abdullah Saeed, in a case for religious freedom, argues that a great many Quranic verses specify without ambiguity that the question of faith and belief is a personal matter between an individual and God. The Quran teaches that we have the ability to consider the options of ourselves and the freedom to make the decisions whether to believe in God. It says, let him who wills believe in it, and let him who will reject it. And whoever chooses to follow the right path follows it for his own good. And if anyone wills to go astray, O prophet said to him, I am only a warner. So how could an oppressive theocratic God, religion of God, be a warner? Warning only makes sense if you have a day of judgment from which to be adjudicated. If you're judged on this earth by the Saudi regime or the Iranian regime, that's not a warner, according to chapter 6, verse 104. It is a dictate of the theocrat. So, the purity of choice, the liberty to believe, is unequaled in life. For it is this choice over which we've all measured and over which I believe as a believer I'll be judged in the hereafter. So if a Muslim believes in the day of judgment in which we face our Creator, then free will must truly be in a laboratory, a laboratory of life that's based not in the centrality of one religion like Islam, but in the centrality of God and the individuality and the preeminence of that individual relationship. So thus, if your citizens in your state have a personal relationship with God, then the, the community, the government, the society needs to protect, protect the sanctity of that relationship and the ability and the sanctity of those choices to drink or not drink, to eat pork or not eat pork, to dress scandally or dress conservatively. All of these judgments that people pass are not theirs to make. It is an individual's choice to make if you truly believe in that day of judgment. The Quran is silent. So if you wonder, how can we engage reformists? Well, a, a true and honest Muslim will tell you that the Quran is silent on the role of government and state leaving space for the individuals to have a free and dynamic relationship with our faith. Abdul Karim Sarush, the author of Reason, Freedom, and Democracy in Islam, says religious geometry or religious thermodynamics are possible only as far as one presupposes that the world has a common source of truth. Otherwise, the religious is separate from the science. 
He then asks, how can human beings fraught with error create infallible governments or churches? The religion of Islam contained with the Quran is the language of duties for Muslims from God, not from government. And human beings are simply being given commandments by a supreme authority in a language of Sharia, rules of God, transmitted to Muslims much like the mitzvot of Judaism. So, ultimately, scholars like Abdul Karim Surush, like Said, like Anaim at Emory, will tell you that Islam and the secular state are not at odds. Now, that's their interpretation of Islam. It's not the dominant interpretation of Islam that we see in Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Pakistan, on and on. Yes, we are outnumbered. We are enlightenment thinkers are the minority. But the West needs to wake up. So begin reform. We need to use the facilities in this laboratory to change the concepts of ummah, of jihad, of sharia, or Islamic law, halal, which is permissible or good, like kosher, haram, which is formidded, forbidden, or bad in God's eyes. These are things that we put over our kids and tell them, though this is haram, forbidden, this is halal, permissible. So religious liberty is incompatible. It's incompatible with that concept of ummah as a nation state that gives you rules. But it's compatible with the understanding of ummah as faith community. And then jihad, you and I talked about. And then concepts of takfir, who is and who is not a good Muslim. And it's, at the end of the day, free will is negated even when we do subtle takfir. When the Islamist groups online say that, oh, there's these fake reformers in Phoenix or across the country who claim to be reforming, but they don't have knowledge of Islam. That's subtle, or maybe not so subtle, Takfir, saying that we're not Muslim enough to have an opinion that might be controversial or modernizing against the opinions of the clerical establishment. So the beginning of reform, I think, is to first find those Muslims that believe, whether Muslims are 99% or 1%, believe that the central lens, the construct of God and or liberty being the center of society, that lens through which we look is key to driving what brings us together as one nation. That's what the flag means. That's what it means to want to serve in our military, to want to serve in our civil society, to want to serve each other, American brothers and sisters, not Muslim, American brothers and sisters. That's the family you want to defend, you want to die for, and you want to defeat the global jihad that looks at the West, looks at European nations, America, Canada, Israel, Western nations, looks upon them in a very derogatory, inferior way. And it starts with the belief that these societies are not about specific policies, specific behaviors, but about the construct of the respect of human rights of every individual. That's the construct we need to employ when we engage our Muslim reformers. This is Zudi Jasser, and we'll be right back with the last segment this week on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Reaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss... Pat and Stu. But the problem here is that you're you're going to hear it from three fat guys. That is yeah. what's going to happen. That's sad. I can only speak for myself here, but I've got to turn this around. Yeah, we do. I've we will. got to turn it around immediately. We all have to turn it around. I'm having a good place. Are you? Wait a minute. What? It just started. A so, good place? It just started. You broke through the floor of the good place. <laughs> Pat and Stu. Weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network.
Zuda Jester, welcome to the last segment this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Uh, we talked about human rights. We've talked about the central elements of reform. may have seemed esoteric, but it's not. We get lost sometimes, and yes, the details are important, and the clerics will try to beat beat us over the head with details of supposed misunderstandings or lack of understandings or education with Sharia, with Hadith, and with the Qur'an. But at the end of the day, what drives my compass, my parents taught me that whenever you are doubtful, remember the hand of God will not come down and tell you, look, this is what it's supposed to be. Stop worrying. No, you will eventually have to make your own decision. So the guiding principle of that decision should be a sense of what's logical, what's right, what feels right. After you've weighed everything, after you have taken account of all the different opinions, we as individual human beings make our own decisions of what's right or wrong. And at the end of the day, my parents taught me that the most important thing we can give our children as they hope to give to me was the sense of morality of what's right and wrong. And that that's how we weigh the rightness in the, in, in the interpretations of our faith. Now, some would say that's almost like atheism. It's a, it's a over-reliance on the individual's sense of supremacy to understand. Well, if that's done in the right context of humility, and we know what feels right. Where else do we have to turn? You can use evidence from scholars, but their evidences are going to have their own biases. And be academic about it. Nobody's saying not to be academic. Nobody's saying to abandon the sanctity of the Arabic text of the Quran. But are they metaphors? Are they real? What does each passage mean? Is it mythical? Is it not? What is the reality of that interpretation, or as my father's Qur'an is described, a modern interpretation of the Qur'an. So, the question is, so where do we go from here? I think the reform movement is one aspect, and in future episodes we'll talk about that. One of the last things I wanted to leave you with this week is the Trump administration has decided to stop supporting the rebels. And they made a big deal about it, made statements from the State Department that they will no longer support the Syrian rebels. Some have said that this was a hat tip to Putin as President Trump met with Putin at the G20, that this then basically solidified the Russian policy that Assad will stay in power and the United States was no longer working against their interests in Syria. Those of you who know me as the son of Syrian immigrants who truly believes that the root cause of most evil in Syria is the Assad regime, the Ba'athists of Syria, that we will not see an end to ISIS, to the radicalization in Syria without an end to that dictatorship, that genocidal Assad regime, the Ba'athists, the Syrian Arab national fascists of Ba'athism, which claims to be interpreted as the Liberation Party, but it's really a fascist nationalist party that's rooted now in a client state status of the Khomeinists. The Alawites are a little offshoot tributary of the Shia and are deeply wedded to Hezbollah and the mothership in Tehran of the Khomeinists. So I'm actually, as much as, first of all, let's be clear. The disaster in Syria is owned, bought, and paid for by the Obama administration. Their policy, they claim to have been supporting the rebels. They were a drop in the bucket so I would tell you that why not have moral clarity? Why not have 
the position of the United States be clearer that they will be on the side that we will give Syria to the ruthlessness of Putin's fascism, to the evil of Putin-Assad war crimes. Let it be clear that that's our policy rather than the passive-aggressive, oh, we will support the rebels and maybe train a few hundred to then release them into the war and have them be killed by the Russians within a few weeks. That's what Obama did. Obama claimed to be supporting the rebels, and if you look at the numbers, contrary to the propaganda of Rand Paul and others, no, we did not create ISIS. The founding fathers of ISIS are the Saudis and the Qataris who have who have funded Jubat al-Nusra, the Nusra Fund, the Islamic State. They claim they didn't do the Islamic State, but a lot of the conveyor belts and the pre-ISIS Islamist Sunni organizations were being funded by Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Now, possibly Trump's reset in the Middle East as of a few months ago might have corrected that a bit, but the ideology is still the same, right? The primary bulwark, it's a sad day that these rebels have been forsaken by the West. And yeah, I think it's lip service, but listen, it's a sad day because if there was any clear, clear anti-jihadists, don't think for a second that the Assad Khomeinists are anti-jihadists. They're anti-Sunni jihad. But they're pro, pro, pro Shia jihadism. The Syrian state is a jihadi, Alawite Shia state, pro Hezbollah, anti Israel, anti Zionist, anti Western. They are not our allies. And to say that somehow we picked the lesser of two evils, no. We provided our missing, our absence has been uranium to the continued fuel of radicalizations of both sides of the jihadi cycle in Syria, bringing in foreign jihadists from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Tunisia, and elsewhere, bringing in Shia jihadists from Lebanon, Iraq, Iran, and Yemen, and Qatar, and elsewhere. So, our absence... Now, we have, I think, the saddest part of America slowing down or stopping the funding of the Syrian rebels is what will happen to the Peshmerga, the YPG, the rebels that were actually also one of the only ones pushing back against both the Islamic State and the Assad regime. But they're not trying to overthrow Assad. And they also don't want to necessarily govern the entire state because the Kurdish could not do that. But they wanted to set up a separate Kurdish state, the Rojava, in northern Syria. And they have friendly relations with Damascus and Tehran. But they can't rule the majority of Syria. So, ultimately, I'll tell you, you know, I know many at Commentary Magazine and elsewhere uh, have been lamenting the withdrawal of American support. I don't know how much covert let alone overt support we have given the rebels. I'm sure many in our families would take anything they could get, at least for, for, for the love of God, to allow humanitarian aid to come in, water, food, medical aid. And without a rebellion that can't get in, the regime takes it and gives it to its own and prevents any neighborhoods that are supporting the rebels from getting any type of humanitarian support. But I will tell any of you that are with me in the need as quickly as possible, as I've been saying since March 2011 when the revolution started, yes, the Assad regime needs to be decimated, needs to be destroyed, needs to, needs to lose, along with Iran and Russia in Syria. But the winners need to be the secularists, not the Islamists now that have become much more powerful. But they're still not going to be able to defeat Assad, who's bolstered by Russia. But for any of you that believe that you're with me, that Assad needs to go, do you really think the United States 
was helping them enough to warrant that being the messaging and the talking point that we're helping the rebels? I think if that's going to be the talking point that America wants Assad to go, then we should have been all in, not with troops, but with aid. Heck, we're sending the Saudis, our so-called allies, whose ideology is pure ISIS. We're sending the Saudi royal family $150 billion of weapons, and we're worried about getting weapons in the wrong hands? I'm not saying we should be sending anything that we may be concerned about could significantly get in the wrong hands, but if they're secular rebels, help them, protect them, give them safe zones. But no, we didn't want to do that. We passive-aggressively said we were helping, but we didn't. So I am of the tough, tough, tough love opinion that, you know, if the United States is not going to be in this to really take sides, really take sides, not militarily again, but substantively with wanting Assad to be defeated and giving the rebels that share whatever few there are that share our values the ability to truly defend themselves and, and defeat the jets that are pummeling them, the, the helicopters and the divisions of Islamists, of the militants, of the Shia Islamists and Sunni Islamists that they need to be able to defeat. But no. So I would tell you that maybe now at least we have truth in advertising. America is no longer going to appear to be backing the rebels when they never really did. And let's see what happens next. See how Iran continues to threaten Israel. See how the Assad regime, with its so-called stability with Russia, actually ends up becoming more of a threat to Israel and our allies. And see how peaceful this balance in the Middle East between the Shia and Sunni powers, how long that'll last. The only future in the Middle East is going to be democratization. It's going to be revolutions. It's going to get sicker. It's going to get messier, more chaotic in the meantime. But make no mistake, the defunding, whatever limited funding there were of the rebels, I don't think is going to change much. They were getting decimated. They're only winning by virtue of wherever they are, by virtue of sheer will to avoid living under the tyranny, the tyrannical nature of the Assad regime, and the twin tyrannies with ISIS and the Iranian Republican Guard, the IRGC. So, stay tuned. We'll see what the next revelation is. At least now, there's clarity with the policy. We'll pray for our families Pray for them to get humanitarian aid for safe zones and for the end of both ISIS and the Assad regime and Russian and Iranian interference and Saudi and Qatari interference. This is Udi Jasser. Thank you for being with me on Reform This, and uh, we'll talk next week. God bless. This is Udi Jasser. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Oh,